Hey everybody, welcome to the Family Jewels True Crime Podcast. My name is Brian Sobolewski and I am your host. Welcome to episode 22, Triple Tap to the Head. Today we're going to talk about Jeff. I'm going to go over um, everything I mean about that title. And uh, I have a story for you at the end. A story I am super proud of because um, when I began this, now, it's really unheard of in, in the comedy community to get a regular spot somewhere um, to be able to get on stage in front of decent audiences. It's a shit show anywhere you live as a comedian because you really only have open mics to go to. And open mics tend to be on a Wednesday night or on a night that a bar would otherwise be dead. And the interest to the bar is that you'd bring the comedians in. And we're all lushes, so, you know, we eat and we drink. And it is a way for, um, you know, bars that don't do well on those nights to, to garner some type of um, clientele. Now, the, any comedian will tell you stage time, stage time, stage time. You got to get up on stage. You got to get up. You got to get up. And all stage time is good stage time. And I've always believed that. So early in my career, comedy career, if you want to call it that, uh, in Boston, um, you know, I managed to find a place that would let me go up a couple times a month to comedy studio. Rick Jenkins would put me up a couple times a month and allow me to uh, practice my craft in front of really good audiences. But you had to earn it. You had to be good. Like, he wasn't going to put you up on a Saturday night or a Friday night if he didn't think you were going to entertain his paying audience. And, you know, I think to some respect, that's what what the... um, when you get booked for a show, a paid show, not where you're getting paid, but where people are paying to come in and see you. Um, it's a, it's an invaluable experience to a comedian because that's an audience um, that you'll be able to tell for sure what jokes work and what don't. But on the, you know, that's a double-edged sword because you certainly don't want to get up in front of that crowd and try out new shit. Because you don't want you want to give your best shit for those shows because you want to get that um, you want to know where your laughs are going to be. There's a, there's such a craft to it that that you know so many people have taught me. My buddy Brian up in up in Nantucket set up punch set up punch set up punch. So you know and if if it's set up set up set up set up set up audience is snoozing unless you're setting up a doozy. So. It's very difficult to tell at an open mic what works and what doesn't. Because you you tend to be in front of a bunch of comedians that have either heard you a bunch of times before or (laughs) the rule of thumb is you don't take for... for, uh, You got to take at face value laughs from a comedic audience because they tend to laugh at really dark, weird shit. So you can't walk away from an open mic and be like, oh my God, I just crushed it. And then you get in front of a paying audience and they hate you. That happens. But that happens. Um, so that's what that is what j- is just so hard about this. And and the bottom line is is that it, you know, at, like Dick Doherty in Boston, a, a Boston legend, um, told me, and 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 Bry, you're lucky if this if you can at some point turn this into what would be considered a part time job. 
because it's, there are very few people that do it at the level that all of us are dreaming of getting to. You know what I mean? So the story that I have um, and, and the experiment, I guess you could call it, that, that I'm doing and that Sick Puppies Comedy is allowing me to do in Doghouse Theater, Tom and Casey, um, please check them out. They're online. They do stuff online and, and they um, check out their sites. And, and if you're in Delray, check out a show because uh, I've pretty much for the past couple of months been able to get up every Friday night in front of varying audiences last night was uh, sold out close to sold out and you know other times that you know they have a couple people in the audience and I never care I love playing to the five people that are sitting in the audience because it, it you know if you can make if you can make them laugh I don't care how many people are in the room and last night was special to me because it's always nerve-wracking what Casey is forcing me to do. But I, I have to believe that it's making me better. And I think last night was evidence that it's making me better because I can't go up with a... You know, I could tell a million stories. I have a whole podcast full of millions of stories. But if I go up with it prepared as a comedian, I'm going to sit down. I'm going to try to write it into jokes. I'm going to try to do set up punch, set up punch. And you know, something gets lost in that, in that, you know, when you're trying to touch somebody with your story, when you're trying to get them to um, go somewhere emotionally with you, uh, comedians are only concerned with you going to the laughter place with them. But um, there will be some seriousness to to my one-man show. So basically what's happening is... I'm trying to figure out which stories will make, uh, will will be in it because I have two seasons now full of stories, and I got to pick out the ones that are going to equal tell my entire story in around ninety minutes. So, the experiment is to get up and and Casey asks the audience for a word, and they say a word, and in this case it was cauliflower, and I have to take that word to a place, to a story, and it, and it not being pre-planned means that I can't write the jokes ahead of time, that I have to try to think on my feet. And and this story was uh, an example. And, I, you know, so many of the improv, because they do improv after the set, and so many of the imp improvisers uh, came up to me afterwards and they just loved the story. And they usually say that to me about, again, last night just felt special. It felt like a, a light switch went on. I was really nervous to get up. And uh, because I, it's always nerve-wracking, because I don't have prepared stuff. Um, and so that was a long way to go around and describe to you uh, the story at the end of this episode. But I, I've said this a lot of times before, and I just want you guys to know that I'm still working on getting this one-man show and developing it and then getting out on the road with it. And I have some ideas for it, um, but it, it'll be a little while. But with any luck... You will someday see the Family Jewels one-man show. Um, anyway, this episode is uh, about Jeff and Triple Tap. And I'm still at Pondville. And at some point during this, I take over. So the kid that I was working for that pretty much ran the office that I was working for, for Prison Industries, he got released. And as soon as he got released, I took over. And it was different. The girls treated me a little bit different because they used to, like, 
when the two girls in the office that ran the office would go to Dunkin' Donuts or go anywhere. They'd say, hey, do you want to get something? And, you know, we would both be able to order something. But once he left, they stopped doing that. And I don't know why. Uh, you know, and he, the dude before me worked there for seven years. So, you know, they had a longer, longer period of time to develop a relationship. And those ladies, I think, can get in trouble for that shit. So it changed a little bit. And I certainly wasn't seeing Sharon anymore. Um, so life um, starts to get a little... I want to say hectic because, again, now that I'm nearing the end of my sentence, I start thinking about, well, what is what is my life going to look like after this? Now, I have three years probation that I have to do. And three years probation, it, it, I didn't know this, you know, before I got out, but I applied to be, they, they had this program where you can get out 90 days before the end of your sentence if you put on a bracelet and uh, an anklet and you wear it for the entire three months and they can track you, blah, blah, blah. And I applied to do that because of mom and because I wanted to get out. But um, I figured if, if that was a possibility, why not go for it? And I remember filling out the request form and I don't remember what was on it, but sitting down with the caseworker and she laughed. It was like the same thing as like the first caseworker that I met with. When she looked at my charges, she laughed. She goes, there's no way in hell they're putting you on a bracelet. So yeah, uh, it's funny because I never, ever, ever, ever thought and looked at my crimes with that type of seriousness, man. And, and so they certainly did. So, still monster denial going on. And you start thinking about, you know, once she said that, and I knew that I was staying all the way uh, till May. Um, you start like, oh my God, my license is expired. I gotta go get my license because not having a license is just a stress. It's just a stress. I gotta be able to drive around and I didn't have a car. Um, so, you know, what was I gonna do about that? You know, is probation going to let me like, is it going to let me leave the state? And where am I going to live? So you start thinking about all this shit. You start thinking about where you're going to work or what you're going to be able to do. And it really, it really stresses you out. So I'm working. I'm in the middle of, you know, this stressfulness. I'm having migraines. Migraines never, ever left my entire prison sentence. Uh, they were always uh, uh, weekly or, uh, you know, bi-monthly occurrence and they put me down they put me down for a day a day or two and um this was the time that i started trying to get into powerlifting because so many it was it wasn't that i was ever into it i hate powerlifting i hate deadlifting i hate trying to push weights that are entirely too heavy for anybody to be able to handle i mean that I don't know. I don't know that there's a whole lot of value in the barbell deadlift to the regular, the regular person, the regular functioning person that has to bend down and pick up their kids. I do not know that there's a whole lot of value in that exercise for them, but it certainly is a demonstration of strength. And my brother has always been amazing at it. My brother has always had amazing hip mobility. He's a fucking ape. He's a goddamn gorilla. So he could squat ass to ankle very easily and could squat 
uh, five, I've seen him do six plates on each side of the barbell. Six 45-pound plates. And leg press, forget it. He could do tons of weight there. And he was just always so strong. So in the powerlifting community, you would go to a meet. And you can see some of these things online. Why you would want to, I don't know. But that's if that's your gig, go ahead. But they usually wear powerlifting suits. And it's this, it's this unitard that squeezed, like, creates a ton of what we call inter-abdominal pressure. Which, it just squeezes you in. And, and not to get too technical in, in why my brother was so strong, but it's, you ever see those, those power lifters, when you look at them, they all have big guts. They're all heavy, heavy guys that you almost would look at them and say, geez, that's a fat guy. But they're unbelievably strong. They say the reason why they are is because that gut can create a lot of inter-abdominal pressure which stabilizes the spine. And if the spine is stable, you get crazy strong hips. And when you put this suit on, it creates even more inter-abdominal pressure. So it adds, some say 50, 60, 70 pounds to your bench press and hundreds of pounds to your deadlift by wearing the suit. So you have to go to these meets and you have to wear a suit because everyone's wearing a suit. So you're not going to go in and not wear a suit. And for those that uh, could lift tons of weight with the suit on, um, you would say that, that guys that didn't wear the suit were raw. That was the terminology we said. So how, what do you lift raw without the suit? And Kev, when measured against the three lifts, the deadlift, the squat, and the bench. Raw, without a suit on, because you couldn't get a suit in prison. He ranked in the top 10 in the country. And this was, the, you know, this is the type of shit these meatheads do. They all have these meats, so they lift a bunch of weight, and they, you know, score each other on who did the best. Seriously, if you've ever seen a powerlifting meet, there's a judge on one side, a judge on the other side, and a judge in the middle, and you have to go down, and you have to do the right, the bar has to touch your shoulder, uh, chest. Um, in the deadlift, you have to go all the way down to the floor. In the squat, you have to go deep, 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 or you get disqualified. And so it's super serious and, and judged very, you know, almost scientifically, but it's ridiculous. And, you know, some of the strongest men in the world combined, those three lifts combined, can lift thousands of pounds. And Kev, Kev could do that. Kev was always just scary strong. Steroid or no, that boy can lift. So it was at this time, and I've always more been on the bodybuilding side of it. If you look at me, you can tell I'm kind of fancy. Um, and bodybuilding is just where you get on stage and you try to flex every muscle as if you were being raped. I mean, that's pretty much every time you look at those pictures of those guys and the faces that they're making. And I did it. I got on stage and I flexed my little panties on stage. It, it's, it's ridiculous. But there I was. And I'm going to do an episode on that. Don't you worry. I think I already have. Didn't I already talk about the acetone? Yeah. Repeating myself already. So I start getting into powerlifting because it was easier to do in prison. It was easier. that You know, you'll have machines in prison. They basically just take a bunch of old weights that somebody probably was trying to throw out. No two dumbbells were ever alike. Uh, they had barbells that were bent and shitty. The plates were rusty and disgusting. 
so you know it lent itself powerlifting lent itself to prison workouts so and huge 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 powerlifting community within prison they will have meat in prison and i don't know how many of them my brother did but um or if he did any but he always went to the gym and, and the powerlifting guys would go up to him and say jesus christ you're, you're strong as hell why don't you compete and, and they would look at what he could squat for 10 and you go into this little chart. They have a one rep max chart. So you, uh, you do 450 for one, you can look and see what, you can measure it. So if he could do 405 for 12, you look at this chart and it'll tell you how much weight you could probably do for one. And Kev was just an animal. Silverback fucking gorilla. So I started doing this powerlifting and everybody was kind of into it. Eric Partak, my cellmate at the time, was into it. And this fat, blob, fuck, piece of shit, Jeff. He was a fat guy that thought he was big. You see, you see that? Like, one of my issues in in um, Breaking Bad was Huel, the, the black guy that was uh, Saul's bodyguard. And he lost a bunch of weight for Better Call Saul. But in that, he was fat. And, and I'm sorry, I don't understand how you're going to stop me from getting at Saul at that size. Unless you're going to just pull out a firearm. But I mean, in this day and age, you, know, you can't be that heavy and, and expect to be able to perform well. Like, you know how I beat him? I make him run 10 feet. And then he can't breathe. And it's over. So... This guy, regardless, was big and fat as fuck. And he still, he subscribed to that stupid, 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 stupid theory that if I wrap myself in a trash bag and go do cardio, I'll sweat more. And if I sweat more, I'll lose more weight. Incorrect, incorrect, incorrect. All you're going to do is dehydrate yourself more. And this guy, this fat pig, and I, you know, listen, I... I'm a personal trainer, been a personal trainer my entire life. I understand the struggle with obesity. I get it. I'm not trying to be um, discriminative here. But this guy was a fat piece of shit. I'm going to call it like I see it. Here's a guy who worked out, wrapped himself in a trash bag, and you would call it running. You ever see that kind of run where the guy's 90 years old and you walk past him, but he's jogging? Like, hey, what's up, buddy? Like, <laughs> that's what he did out, out on the track, the yard. And wrapped in, he would wear a hoodie, a trash bag under it, and trash bag around his legs. Two trash bags around his legs. And he would sweat. Can you imagine what his laundry smelled like? Because, ugh. Ugh. And then he would go into the little gym hut that we had, this little shed. And he would get on the, uh, there was an exercise bike in there. And he'd get on there and sweat his ass off for hours. And then, you know, didn't lose a weight, any weight. So any weight that you would get on a scale and see lost was water. Sweating is not indicative of anything other than your body trying to cool itself. Some people don't sweat at all. Well, why don't you sweat? Because they don't have any active sweat glands. Is that a bad thing? Nope. You, they're just not active. So you ever see somebody that just sweats in their crotch? Do you know why? That's where the active sweat glands are. I sweat in my back. My back will sweat like crazy. I'll get out of the car in, here in Florida and the back of my shirt will be soaked. The front will be fine. All that means is you have active sweat glands in those areas. So, boom. Botox those son of a bitches if you don't want to sweat there. But it's not an indication of health or how hard you're working or how hard you're not working. It's none of that. 
and it will not induce or speed up weight loss. So I'm going a long way around to prove my point that this dude's an idiot. Because, I, I'm, you know, he would come to the cell and I'm on the top bunk and I'd have my headphones on and I would be watching TV. And this son of a bitch would come in and sit on the chair. And I had talked to Eric a ton about, because Eric was a big kid, but he wasn't strong. And when I told him the weights that my brother was pulling, he always, I don't believe it. I don't fucking believe it. There's no way. There's no way. And then, of course, he would go and shoot his mouth off to Jeff about what I said. And it was like, just so, like, so third grade little girl fucking, Bryce says his brother does this. The kid was such a bag of shit. And listen, I'm in prison, so that's where they put bags of shit. So I'm not surprised. And I am myself a bag of shit. <laughs> so, it's, the hypocrisy is, is staggering. And I just kind of get to the point where I, I avoid the cell um, whenever they're hanging out. I hate the guy. And I'm starting to really not like, I, you know, Eric and I got along. You, you have a choice. Either get along with your cellmate and, and make as, as peaceful of a living situation as you can. And, and some cellmates, man, you know, life become long, lifelong friends. If I could have celled up with, um, with Charlie, God damn, my time would have been awesome. Um, so you try to, to live with them as, as best you can. And that's why him and I talked and, and we would talk late into the night, man, that kid was messed up. And I had a psychology degree at the time. I would pick in his head a little bit. And that kid was abused. That kid was, and it, it is typical that you find that these big blustery macho guys are really just scared little boys. They're just scared little boys. And, and that, that I think is the essence of bullying, right? You're a scared little kid. Uh, it's staggering, you know, the, the uh, statistic of how many abusers abuse. It's like 90%. Tool, my favorite band, wrote a song about it. Um, prison sex, which everyone's like, no, oh, that's gross. He uses that illusion. Did I say that word? The A-L-L-U-S-I-O-N? No? I don't know. But they use that um, to talk about the fact that, hey, uh, I got raped, so I'm going to rape you. It's, a, it's, it's fascinating in that you would think the brain would deal with it in a different way. They would not want to ever do that. So it's amazing. That's an am amazing study and amazing response to trauma. So, and, and that's all I think about when I'm, when I'm talking to Eric and when I'm listening to him and, and he doesn't see it. And, you know, you dig a little bit and you find out some things about him. And then, you know, naturally he pulls back a little bit and turns into a scared little boy and goes and bad, bad mouths me and my brother who he had never fucking met before to Jeff. In the midst of this, there were, there were constant shakedowns. And, and when they did shakedowns, if they found any contraband, they'd they'd bring it down to the front desk and this cop, Richie, this fat, I could say everybody's fat, but there were a lot of fat people. Lumpy. Oh, we got to talk about Lumpy too. But Richie was just, he was like a Fred Flintstone looking. Just all, every single time he addressed you. Slobolowski. 
and he never addressed me, but this particular time. So they would shake down cells. If you had contraband, they'd call you down. They'd be like, where'd you get this? What the fuck is going on? Why do you have this? And you're not supposed to have two sets of headphones. Property doesn't let it happen. But Eric had two sets of headphones. And we got shaken down. And um, we go in and he goes, oh shit. My, when we go back into the cell, Eric's like, oh shit, they got my, my second pair of headphones. And he's like, I don't... I forget what reason I was able, like, he says, you got to say that they're yours because I think it was a specific type of headphone. Like you could have the headphone that you had to sit really close to the TV to listen to. Like it almost came with the TV. They're not going to sell you a TV that doesn't have a speaker with no headphones with it, but they were just a pain in the ass to use. And you could order a pair of headphones from Canteen. They were very expensive and they were like cheap Walkman type, but they had a really long cord. Now, I only had that first pair and you're allowed to have another pair that you get from property or get from Canteen. So Eric had two pairs of that. And he said, you know, dude, can you just go down there and say that that second pair of headphones is yours? I'm like, dude, no. I don't want to get jammed up. Stop. I, this guy's not going to fucking believe me. He's going to say, what the fuck? And I, please, no, why would I do that for you or anybody? But I'm an idiot. It's like why I took the joint when Kev slid it under my cell door. So we go downstairs and they're fucking Richie screaming, Sobolewski, Partak, the fuck are you? And I try to say, those are mine. He's like, don't fucking bullshit me. Stop it. They're going in the trash. See you later. Like, the, the second you try to lie, man, these guys are lied to every second. Think you're going to go there and pass some bullshit? Eh. I hated it, man. It was just... Uh, when I agreed to stupid shit like that. So we go back up, and... I get a visit from my mother, and Jess comes down, and Jess has her uh, firstborn kid, Eddie. Eddie's first time he set eyes on me, I was in prison. Shit. It was a particular, you know, I was stressed out. I was pissed off. Um, you know, the whole Sharon thing, I was I was a little heartbroken, I guess. You know, and I'm laying in my bunk, kicking back, trying to chill out. And here comes Jeff. And Jeff comes in and he starts talking, he, he starts talking about how he eats every night an entire sleeve of Pringles. An entire sleeve. Don't know, you know, you can look at the back of the package and how much calories that is, how much fat that is, how much salt that is. But again, here, this idiot doesn't even understand that his brain's desire to consume all of that salt is because he wrapped trash bags around his stupid ass and went running three, four, five times a week. And how the fuck do you expect to lose weight when this Pringles are... And who else knows what else he's making beyond that? He was always down in the vending machines. He was never missed a meal like this guy. This guy ate, and he's trying to lose weight. I don't know. I don't know how you chase that carrot. You'll never be ahead of that. Um, and he comes in, and I never liked this guy. We never talked, and he starts saying, and, and I can hear him talking. So I got my headphones in, and I can hear him say, "Hey, did uh." Did, did he talk to his did he talk to the super strong brother again like how much is his brother lifting I can see you talking about my brother and like I'm not in the fucking room and I start to boil 
I start to fucking boil and I turn, I take my headphones off and I say, Hey Jeff, if you got a fucking problem with me, say it. And my God, does he erupt like this, this, this asshole was waiting for an excuse. So he gets up and he starts fucking flipping out. He's, what do you fucking, what do you want to go? What are you, you're a piece of shit. You're nothing. And he starts screaming at me and starts pacing back and forth. And he opens the cell door. Now, this is where I know this is a show pony. This is, he's just going to bluster and blah, 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 blah. nobody wants to go to the hole and have their shit taken away. And, and so I drew a line in the sand and he was going to make sure that everyone on the fucking block knew that he was willing to cross it. And he starts screaming out, I'll end you. I'll fucking end you. I've ended people fucking way tougher than you. And what, what set me off, I don't like to be touched. I don't like that. I don't, I'm a, I'm somewhat of a germaphobe in a lot of ways. And he covered one nostril and blew a snot, went to blow a snot at me and he breathed out his nose and there was nothing there to blow, but the, the intent was there. It's like, it's like Charlie picking up the knife and he cuts off the four fingers. Well, if you pick up a knife, what is your intent? A lot of people trying to defend themselves don't tend to go and, you know, it's tough. It's a tough sell to say that your intent wasn't to eventually stab somebody because that's what you would do with a knife. He wasn't coming at you with a carrot that needed slicing. So in that instance, the fact that he was, that he would even do that. And I knew he was going to try to spit at me next and fuck it. No way. I'll, I'll pick up a chair. I don't give a shit. I, like, no. So after he did that, like as he was blowing that out, triple tapped him. Pap, pap, pap. I pointed my toe. I was on the top bunk. I swung my legs around and tapped him three times with the top of my foot right in that fucking nose. Fucking right I did. Piece of shit. <laughs> he goes back. He's like, oh, you could see his little beady eyes were like blinking like he just couldn't fucking understand it. And by then, you know, it's done. The cop, there was a cop on the block and Jeff closes the door and Eric is like, Jesus Christ, what the fuck is going on? Like he doesn't want to get jammed up in anything either. Cop goes by, Jeff leaves the cell. Pretty sure, pretty sure his nose was bleeding. Pretty fucking sure. And he scampers off. Again, listen, everyone gets jammed up in that situation, man. Eric would have gone to the hole. Fucking Jeff would have gone to the hole. I would have gone the hole, meaning over to Walpole, sit in Walpole for as long as, you know, until some disciplinary committee takes a look at what happened, determines what the penalty for your role in what happened is, and then you serve it. But then you'd have to see the class board again. So, you know, I only had... A couple months left at this point didn't matter to me. I would have I would have sat out in Walpole, blow a snot rocket at me. Oh, fuck. So after this whole stupid fucking incident, Eric is like, Jesus Christ, bro, what the hell? And I'm like, no, I, what? What do you want me to do, man? You know, he was pissed because he would he would have been jammed up. So the next, the next day I'm like, I don't know what's going to happen here. Cause there are several times that I, I have been up to that point alone with Jeff in the weight room 
and that's, you know, I have seen people get their skulls bashed in by, you know, by weights and dumbbells. They're easy to use as weapons. And I, I was scared. I'm sorry. I was scared shitless. I, that was a complete uh, lapse in judgment. It's so impulsive. Uh, and But I snapped. And I was worried about the repercussion. And I had seen so many instances of people getting, you know, stabbed by not... It's very rare that you're ever going to be one-on-one -on -one with anybody, ever. You're going to be fighting him and his buddies, or you're going to get jumped, and you know people are cheap. And, uh, you know, I had to spend the next couple of days wondering what the fuck he's going to do. I didn't break his nose. Um, there was no marks on his face. And when I did see him again, he came up to me. I was actually starting to dial a phone, and it was it, I was avoiding the phones. I was avoiding being out in the hallways. I was avoiding being alone anywhere. It was, it sucked. And he comes up to me as I was dialing my mom, and I was, you know, already now this is a tense situation. Comes up to me, goes, "Dude, I'm really sorry. I didn't mean to. I didn't mean to disrespect you like that." And uh, I, you know, sorry. And he walks away. And that was it. That was the end of it. Nothing, no repercussion. And I didn't believe it. You know, I didn't because I don't know. In some instances, it, it, it almost seemed like he respected me more. Because at that, and, and by that time, it had gone around the prison what had happened. Everybody talked about it. Partak fucking started squawking about it. And the rest of my time was pretty nice. It's pretty nice, but you know, I don't know. I it's not it's not something I'm I'm happy about. You know, I didn't want it to happen, but uh, I, I was never really one to be prone to snapping like Kev. Um, just don't blow a snot rocket at me. <laughs> okay, guys, that's triple tap. That is my story today. A little bit shorter than my normal blathering on for hours about stuff, but I hope you like this episode. Triple tap was fun to make. And I got the story for you coming up, so please uh, stay tuned. I'm going to play the Sick Puppies, uh, Doghouse Theater, Casey Casperson, check um, all of that out. And um, we'll see you next week. And take care of yourself. Have a good one, everybody. Uh, so uh, Brian does his comedy in a different form. He will tell you a story from his uh, colorful past, if you will. And, uh, and it's going to be inspired off of a word that you give us. What's, a, what's any word that you thought of today? Shout it out. Cauliflower. All right. No one else shouted anything. <laughs> <laughs> Think about that. Think about what you did. <laughs> so now. Rainstorm. Uh, so we heard cauliflower. We'll go cauliflower. Uh, what does cauliflower make you think about, Brian? What an unbelievably awful cook my mother was. All right, off to the races. <laughs> my mother was an alcoholic. <laughs> yeah, and she didn't know how to cook with alcohol, man. She drank it while she was. <laughs> and it was only last month when I went into a fresh market and I said, hey, I think I'm going to try these manicotti. And I brought them home and I was like, oh my god, these are just like homemade. Until I realized these were the homemade. <laughs> this is what she did. Now let me explain what type of cook my mother was. I lived in the type of house where you could wake up one morning and be freezing. This was in New England. Anyone from Boston? Yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm sorry. Um, 
But you would wake up and there'd be no heat and you'd go downstairs and mom would have the broiler on. Anyone do this type of type of warming? <laughs> like the broiler's on, the oven door is open and we're just kind of all huddled around it because mom decided to drink the heating bill. Okay, so this is, so from there, she decided which cuisine she was going to make for us based on whether or not we had heat. It was her favorite thing to make for us. She would take a plain donut and she would put about a half a stick of butter in cubes all on the top of this donut and shove it under the broil. Okay? This was so you would get enough calories that as you went to the cold shower and then walked to your room to dress for school, the shivering, you didn't die from starvation. This is the kind of shit that was going on in my house. But on the other side of the token, when my mother was sober, she could cook up a fucking storm, man. That woman could crush it. And she used to make for us what I used to call Polish soup. And you have to understand that this cuisine was invented by people that were fucking hungry. Right? So the best meals you've ever eaten were from cultures that were fucking starving. Okay, the rich cultures just ate the fat and the sugar and they did whatever the hell they want. But the people that had to pull a beet out of the ground and make that delicious, the only time you pull a beet out of the ground and you're like, yes, was when you were fucking hungry. So my mother made this Polish soup and it was basically watered down tomato soup with boiled potatoes. So you would take a boiled potato and put it in the bottom of the bowl and pour this watered down tomato soup and then crush the uh, potato off. And then we would put egg bows over it. This, you couldn't eat three bites of this without feeling like you're gonna have to nap. <laughs> like I used to call this nap soup because you couldn't get through a bowl of it without getting sleepy. Like, and this, again, this taught me about our Polish culture because this is how Hitler rolled into Poland. It didn't have to fire a fucking shot. We were all asleep, guys. <laughs> <laughs>